My cat only eats macaroni Her face is always looking at a screen I rarely read her books before bed And I often forget to brush her teeth I'm a good mom Not a perfect one I'm always making mistakes I'm a good mom With many limitations I can't be everything And that's okay You are listening to Cult of Perfect. This is a podcast about the intersection of motherhood, public performance, and bodies. I'm Sarah Peterson. I write the newsletter In Pursuit of Clean Countertops, and I am the author of Momfluenced. And I'm Virginia Soul Smith. I write the newsletter Burnt Toast. I host the Burnt Toast podcast, and I'm the author of Fat Talk, Parenting in the Age of Diet Culture. And we are doing this. (laughs) We are finally doing this. It's very exciting. Sarah and I have been talking about doing a podcast together for a long time, like pretty much since you came on Burnt Toast, I think. And we were like, oh, we have a lot to say to each other. Yeah. So here's how it will work. You'll get today's episode for free so you can get, you know, a taste of what we're doing, what to expect for next week's episode and for the entire series. And the next five episodes in the series will all come with a paywall attached. So it's just $5 per month or $15 for the full series. The episodes will be coming out every other week. And then on the off weeks, when we don't have a new episode for you, we will be hosting live thread discussions on our Substack, which I am so excited about. And these will either dig deeper into the prior week's episode or let us go off on totally fun tangents, depending on you know, listener questions and listener feedback. So we're really excited to sort of engage directly with listeners. I expect many tangents, personally. (laughs) Just a hunch. (laughs) Okay, so to join us and make sure you never miss anything, click the link in your episode description or go to cultofperfect.substack.com. You can also add us to your podcast players so you never miss an episode. So we are kind of taking our two worlds and merging our two (laughs) worlds, which are actually very similar worlds in a lot of ways. So I write Burnt Toast, which is a newsletter about diet culture, anti-fat bias, and parenting. And that is also the focus of my new book. And I have been doing this work for most of the last decade while I have been a parent. I've been also on this personal journey, although I sort of hate that phrase, of (laughs) Divesting from diet culture, understanding the role of anti-fat bias in my life and how it shows up in parenting. And then just as someone who has a health journalism background, spent many years reporting in a very like pro-dieting way about weight loss and health and all of that. And then has been doing a ton of unlearning and understanding about what the research really tells us about those things. My job involves hearing from parents pretty constantly. Like I get emails, DMs et cetera, comments on the newsletter from parents all the time. You know, they're talking about like, how do you get a toddler over picky eating? And how do you help a tween through like the puberty body changes and all these different stages? But the underlying theme of all of those is discomfort with bodies and like discomfort with the fact that their bodies, their children's bodies, don't measure up to this ideal. And that Mm -hmm. in order to be a good mother or a good parent, you have to be feeding your child perfectly. You have to be adhering to all these external standards, which are very hard to attain. And you also somehow have to be thin while doing it. Like, that's a prerequisite. 
of being a good mom <laughs> in our culture. Right. So the perfection thing comes up a ton. And it's also something I have been reckoning with personally quite a bit. I mean, I would say I opted out of diet culture at least like five to eight years ago, pretty consciously. And yet I'm still seeing like vestiges of these standards and this like my house has to look a certain way. My kids have to be dressed a certain way. Like all this like perfectionist bullshit still showing up for me personally. When you were like explicitly and deliberately divesting from diet culture, were you still actively freelance writing pieces that were kind of like pro diet culture? And was that just the biggest mindfuck? It was a blurry line. It was a big mind fuck. Like I wrote some pieces that looking back now, I'm like, that is straight up diet culture. And at the time I was like, I am exploding the system with this story. (laughs) Like I did this one piece for Self Magazine when my older daughter was like a year and a half too. So, you know, at least six years ago, certainly at a point where I was like, I am no longer dieting. I am done with dieting. I'm not going to do that anymore to myself. And I don't want to write diet stories. Like I don't want to write how to get your best beach body. But I took this assignment from self, which was on the science of detoxing. And part of the story was me working with a integrative medicine doctor and doing her detox. Mm -hmm. And so, like, I did the detox as part of the story and reported out the science of detoxing and was like, oh, I'm really critiquing the system. Not, not really. Right. <laughs> when I look at that piece now, like, I'm just like, oh, my God. It yeah. Just, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't, wasn't all the way there yet. And yeah, totally. there was certainly a part of me that was, like, doing, well, it doesn't matter if I don't lose weight, but maybe I'll lose weight doing, I, mean, I might lose some weight mm-hmm. doing this. And, you know, but, I mean, wouldn't it be great to have more energy? And, right. you know, like, that's what I'm doing it for, obviously. And, like, yep. oh, she's identifying all these, like, ways that my body is failing, so I need to... You know, and then I was, like, being really critical about the lack of research behind it. But, like, the magazine really loved this doctor. You know, the editor wanted me to work with her. Like, it was obviously, like, also good marketing for that doctor for the yeah. writer to be doing her diet. So, yeah, that was that was a murky time. Was a oh, murky God. Time. Another thing that strikes me that's particularly fraught about your work is that the whole good mother ideal is that not only should you be a thin mom to be a good mom, but your kids' bodies also, you know, reflect your supposed huge scare quotes, good motherhood. Yes, you are really measured by your kids' bodies, which is ridiculous because you can really not impact your child's body size. Like, it's primarily determined by your family's genetics. There's a whole myriad of factors we don't really understand that drive body size, but the largest driver is genetics. So if you come from a long line of apple-shaped, small, fat people like I do, even if your kids are thin, odds are very good, you know, they're going to grow mm-hmm. up and be small, fat, apple-shaped people. I'm using apple, and like that's that women's magazine language. I want to be clear. I don't identify as an apple. <laughs> I reject that label, but it is the shorthand way to describe my body. Totally. And then you encounter that pressure at the doctor's office, you know, like family conversations about this stuff. Like that's where parents can feel really judged and really experience like straight up discrimination if they are, quote, failing to produce them children. I feel like that's enough about me. I feel like now you need to do some talking. 
So I have written about the intersection of motherhood and feminism for several years. And not surprisingly, that eventually led me to an obsession with momfluencer culture. <laughs> and momfluencers, like a quick and dirty definition, are people who have utilized their identities as mothers on social media to monetize their platforms. That's one way of looking at momfluencers and probably the most traditional way. But another way to look at momfluencers is really any mom on the internet who is at all invested in sharing about her motherhood, talking about her motherhood. You know, every time we post something about our mothering experience, we're going through several different like value judgments. We are thinking about how we want to be seen in the world. We're thinking about our supposed fitness as mothers. And there's always a layer of performance. Yes. And often we're performing for really problematic audience markers. Wait, say more about what that means, problematic audience markers. Totally. I mean, because when we're thinking about, okay, I'm going to post this picture of, you know, the stainless steel, like, snack containers with the little compartments or whatever. Mm -hmm. I'm going to post this picture of my kid's lunch on the day that it has pomegranate seeds, cheddar cheese slices, and, like, broccoli or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And the cheddar cheese is going to be cut into star shapes. Some gluten-free crackers, the kind with lots of seeds on them. Yes, yes, yes. yes. And there's going to be a choking hazard, but anyway, (laughs) carry on. (laughs) And then there's going to be like a handwritten note, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, whatever. So I'm showing that I'm a good mother because of what my kid is eating, because of the packaging of Mm -hmm. what the kid is eating, because I'm the type of mother that took the time out of her day to you know, create a whimsical drawing and, you know. (laughs) Use flower shapes, cookie cutters on my cheese. Yeah, Totally, totally. And like, that is just one tiny, tiny way to measure one's motherhood. Mm -hmm. And it's reliant on an external gaze. If we derive like internal satisfaction from making cute star-shaped, you know, cheese slices, that's great. Do your star-shaped cheese, whatever. Yeah. But I think it gets complicated when we only get that sort of like, ooh, I'm feeling good about myself. I'm feeling good about my mothering if somebody else has seen it. Could you make the star-shaped cheese and not post the photo of it? Right. Would it be just as valid? Exactly. Would it be just as meaningful? And also so many of the markers of quote-unquote good motherhood were explicitly created and determined by white men in power. Mm Mm-hmm to forward very specific agendas that Mm -hmm. have harmed so many marginalized groups throughout history. The more you dig into ideals of good motherhood, the messier it gets and the more apparent it is that there is no such thing as the ideal mother. She was created. She was invented. She was not created or invented by women or mothers, Mm -hmm. particularly not women or mothers of color or other marginalized mothers. And she's really serving no one and actively harming many others. Which is just like the development of our body ideals, right? Like the thin ideal was not created by fat folks, was not created, you know, was not created by women, Um, was definitely something that white men came up with in a concerted way to control people and cause harm. So yeah, so that's like the overlap right there. Yeah. Patriarchy, white supremacy. We're both (laughs) attacking it in slightly different ways. And this piece of performance, like I'm interested in how we perform bodies. Sarah's interested in how we perform motherhood. You often are performing both simultaneously in this culture because the expectations for both are so intertwined. 
I do have a funny lunchbox story for you, which is, so I am really anti-packing lunches and I retired this year. Congratulations. Thank you. When my younger daughter was still in a preschool where I had to pack lunch and she was only three, I did it (laughs) because I'm a good mother. You know, I was like, I will pack your lunch, three-year-old who can't open (laughs) containers. And I kept doing it through the end of preschool. But then she started kindergarten this year. And so now I had both kids in public school with a lovely cafeteria. And I was like, you can buy your lunch. This is right. I'm retired. (laughs) But they don't want to buy lunch every day. Even with my many speeches about how great school lunch is, they don't buy it. Yeah. And so I was like, all right, if you want to pack sometimes, you can, but I'm not packing it. Like, you have to pack it yourself. And yep. so my fourth grader has been running with this, and she's been packing her lunch all year, most days. She buys a couple of days a week. She's, like, got it down to a science. She knows what she wants. But with the kindergartner, I kind of didn't even give that option because I was like, can you pack your lunch? Yeah, You're right, five. You right. seem like you'll be bad at this. <laughs> right. Will I end up packing it for you? Anyway, long story short, she finally was like, you know, mom, lots of kids bring their lunch. They don't all just buy. And I was like, oh, (laughs) did not know that. (laughs) So I explained the policy. And so she's been packing her lunch for the last two weeks. And she was so happy with her lunch today. And I looked in it. We have the little like bento box lunch boxes. Sure. Same. Because I mean, I am a millennial mother. And so, of course, I bought the rainbow stack of them. Sure. And they are actually great for a kid to pack lunch because they just have like put stuff in, you know? Yes. And she had put in pirate booty, cheddar cheese, and two orange bell peppers. And she was like, isn't this a great lunch? Everything is orange. And I was like, it's an amazing lunch. I'm so excited for you. And I just thought, like, what if I posted this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. my performative lunch post. Like, people would lose their minds. Because, like, where's the rainbow? Where's the green vegetable? Where's the homemade blah, blah, blah? And Mm -hmm. I was like, great. I love it. Wait, were the orange peppers, like, whole orange peppers? Like the little mini bell oh, peppers. Okay, the little you know? Okay. Yeah. But okay. she like specifically picked out the orange ones from the bag because she wanted it to match her to match. I love that so much. <laughs> and like she's so happy and I'm could care less because she'll eat it and it's fine. And I was just like, huh, maybe I'll get content out of this or maybe I'll just <laughs> I don't need to perform. Even that right there. Though, I know. The fact that I'm like, do I get content out of this so I can make a I comment know. on the performance of Lunchboxes by performing my child's Lunchbox? Like, I oh, know. we're in I, the matrix. I, <laughs> I feel the same way when like, I'll see like a funny mess or something mm-hmm. or like a kid mess that can be constructed as like clever somehow mm-hmm. if I come up with the right tagline or whatever. It's exhausting. But that's what we're going to do on this podcast. We're going to interrogate our own participation in these systems. We're going to explore what this performance means, how it serves us, how it harms us, like these standards. We're going to look at what it means to be a less perfect mother and how we achieve that without forcing ourselves to achieve that because (laughs) because that is also a pursuit of perfection in a different way. It's so fraught. It's so fraught. All right. So, Sarah, do you want to help us define some terms? Should we start by defining what do we mean by perfect? Yeah, it's so interesting because I think I would say I've identified as someone that like is anti-perfection for several years Mm -hmm. because I think I've long looked at perfect as almost like some Montplitzers. Like, Mm -hmm. their houses are all white, they're all beige, there are no toys, there's no clutter, the meals are bespoke, the Mm -hmm. nurseries are restoration hardware-esque, you know, 
where no kid has ever lived or will ever live. Right. And so I've long been like, that's bullshit. Like, Mm -hmm. that's never felt like a struggle to me to see that as bullshit. But I think if I'm looking at the way perfect shows up in my own life still, it's like, how can my mothering, my house, my wardrobe, my skincare, my exercise, my friendships, my relationships be the best version of them, like for me specifically? Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. it's almost like, you know, I feel like I've shed the stereotypic version or definition of perfect long ago, but I still hold on to like, I can still find my own Sarah version of perfect. Oh, interesting. Which will be like totally customized and totally suited to my individuality. Mm -hmm. And because I'm so thoughtful about it, it's really going to make my life full and creatively Mm -hmm. meaningful. And so I think our personal definitions of perfect sort of shift like depending Mm -hmm. on where we are in life. And I think that's kind of interesting to track. Like I think a lot of people could easily say, especially after having kids, like, you know, the jig is up. We all know that version of perfect doesn't exist. Yeah. So I'm kind of interested in how we define like personal perfects, I guess. Mm -hmm. I definitely resonate with that idea. I think similarly, I think of myself as someone who has rejected a lot of perfection. And also, there's also the fact where, like, I feel calmer when my countertops are clear, you know? Like, I go around and tidy up my house every morning after my kids get on the bus, not because I'm going to put it on Instagram, but because, like, somehow my brain is quieter when it is like that. But also, like, is my brain quieter when it is like that because I am aware of the potential for judgment if it is not like that? Right. And my own judgment as well as other people. So it's very hard to tease out what is actually like a personal preference. Mm-hmm. I mean, because I fundamentally think we don't have personal preferences in this yeah. culture. Like we're so influenced by messaging and yeah, social pressures that like yep. your own straightforward personal preference is like can be very hard to hone in on. Yeah, it doesn't exist in a vacuum. I was thinking as you were talking, we've both talked to Casey Davis. And something she said to me that really resonated, because she said so many people say, like, I do feel calmer when my house is put together, when my countertops are clean. Like, I do too. I think many people would resonate with that. And she was likening it to, like, being at the beach. Like, a lot of people say, you know, I feel very calm at the beach, but they don't not feel calm when they're not at the beach. Mm -hmm. Like, the absence of being at the beach doesn't trigger... I wonder if it's something to do with the fact that I don't have to create or maintain the beach. Mm. I get to just show up on a beach day. I mean, I had to pack a ton of shit to get in my car to drive my children, like whatever. But, you know, the beach itself is this beautiful gift that I just get to go and appreciate and then walk away from. Mm -hmm. Whereas the countertops is something I expect myself to achieve and sustain. Mm. And so... I don't feel like a failure if I'm not at the beach because I don't have to make the beach. But I feel like a failure if the countertops aren't clean because that's like on me. Mother Nature is not gifting me beautiful countertops. Well, similarly, if I like go to a hotel by myself, (laughs) I'm a complete disaster. I just like everything (laughs) everywhere because like there's no looming pressure to maintain. 
Like, I'm just going to pack it all up and fucking leave. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, and that's there, true. So there is something about, you know, we create these spaces, we have to maintain these spaces. Right. What is our success or failure of maintenance say about us, mm-hmm. even if it's just internally? And again, because the internal is so connected to the external. Like, right. your internal judgment is actually a voice from outside. Totally. I'm somewhat similar in hotels. Like, I never make hotel beds, but I'll make my bed most in a, every day. But like, if I'm feeling like a little anxious, I'll have to make my bed as like a, okay, yep. I got, yeah, I got yeah, that yeah. done, you know? I feel like we're talking a lot about home maintenance and house decor, which, you know, we both relate to in different ways. I am curious how the pursuit of perfection shows up in motherhood that, you know, isn't the, you know, aspiring for an all-white, everything minimalist mm-hmm. home with whatever. Mm-hmm. Because I think it creeps in in ways that we don't always immediately recognize. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm thinking of even, like, how we parent. Like, my mom, raising us in the 80s and 90s, did not have access to hundreds of Instagram accounts. Right. Modeling, like, gentle parenting scripts, for example. Right, right. Like, she could talk about best practices with her friends and her family and, like, get a book if she really mm-hmm. wanted to. But she was not bombarded with hundreds, sometimes thousands of voices mm-hmm. saying, like, okay, if Tommy has a meltdown, you need to validate his feelings. Like, there's just a lot more noise in terms mm-hmm. of how to be a mom. And then you're really set up for the guilt spiral when you actually do lose your shit and scream at your kids. I think it's very easy to start feeling like it's me, I'm the problem, to quote Taylor yes, Swift. of course. It's very easy to feel like all these other parents, all these other moms are able to effortlessly do this somehow. And how come I am so triggered by my child's moods? I'm trying very hard not to take tween moods personally right now. This is a journey I'm on. Oh, yeah. And like, I just can't. Like, I am so immediately knee-jerk annoyed when I'm getting the like eye roll and the rudeness. And like, I have read all the things about how this has nothing to do with me. And like, this is just a stage of life she's going through or whatever. And I want to respect that and be that. But I'm also so annoyed in the moment. And layered onto that, there's the like, oh, God, my kid can't be this rude. You know, I have to teach my kid not to behave like this. So often the like narratives we're getting about what, quote, good or perfect parenting look like really conflict with each other. Because it's like, am I supposed to hold boundaries and like not accept certain things? Or am I always supposed to make space for their feelings and validate and like have zero emotional reaction of my own to this. Right. Even though the rest of the world will not do that. Right. You know, right. Like, the rest of the world is not going to gentle parent our children. No, they're really not. They're really right. not. Yeah. There was some interview with Dr. Becky, you know, who obviously is one of the voices that talks a lot about this and I think does have a lot of very useful strategies for folks that I've certainly tried diligently to employ. (laughs) You know, and she said, she's like, my kids don't have Dr. Becky as a mom. Like, that's Mm -hmm. not who their mom is. And I was like, oh, I feel so much better. Yeah, I'm glad to know that. I think it was on like a Glennon Doyle podcast or something. She was like, I lose my shit with them all the time. Yeah, And then like, you know, some percentage of the time I'm striving to also do this like validation and modeling. But that nuance gets lost so fast in the like larger discourse around this stuff. I sort of am am developing a theory as we speak that some of it has to do with, at least for me, if I am armed with knowledge, then I feel as though I have no choice but to act upon that knowledge. Mm. Like if I know 
that losing my shit on my kid is going to inflict psychological damage or whatever. Or just like, like not be productive at resolving. Right, right, yeah. It doesn't not, get you out of the meltdown faster. Yes, yeah, exactly. Like something about the weight of the knowledge mm-hmm. feels connected to just my internal struggles with perfect. In the moment, I'll be having like a power struggle with a kid. And I'm like, you know, I feel like a dog with a bone where I just keep pushing and pushing and pushing, (laughs) even though I know, like, stop, stop. This is not effective. This is not productive. There's something about having the knowledge, but still failing. It feels worse. Well, I think, too, we're at a really interesting larger cultural moment where so many moms are articulating this feeling of, like, this is too hard. I mean, certainly, like, we've seen this through the pandemic. We don't have these larger social supports that we desperately need when, like, our struggle is so invisible. Like, so Mm -hmm. much of the labor we do is invisible to our families, but also to society. Like, it's like this expectation to have all this knowledge, be doing all this research, have these best practices in mind, when, like, a lot of that doesn't even apply in the moment. It makes no space for the struggle that so many of us are facing, like not enough childcare, not enough mental health support, et cetera, et cetera. It's like we've been given all this information, but really not any of the tools needed to execute much of that. Well, and I think it's also really connected to the fact that, you know, American individualism still reigns and Mm -hmm. the cult of the nuclear family is still held up as, you know, what we should all aspire to. And that puts all the onus and pressure on individuals rather than communities, which is why we all completely cracked up during the pandemic. Because like, at least for children go to school or have childcare, they're being parented by teachers, Mm -hmm. by, you know, sports coaches, by daycare providers, by neighbors, by, you know, our friends, their friends, mothers and Mm -hmm. fathers, like we are not the only parents in their lives. Right, right. They're getting all these other models. Because of the Institute of American Motherhood, I mean, we are expected to be nutritionists. We are expected to be parenting experts. Mm-hmm. Like, you don't you don't know how to parent just by having a kid. No. Like, no. we are expected to be home designers. We are expected to be teachers. Just everything's expected of mothers specifically in a way mm-hmm. that it is not of fathers. Right. Which, you know, is, of course, wrapped up in, like, gender essentialist bullshit. Another thought I'm having is how parenting is so much better in community. Like, we need that. We need those additional supports and that sense of the village and all of that. And the way this narrative around motherhood today sets us up to be at odds with our own community. Like, so much of my anxiety around being a good mother is, like, how I will be perceived by my peers, right? Mm. And that's, like, you know, if my kid's the one having the meltdown in the preschool drop-off line, like, you know, what are other people thinking? There often is, like, certainly among my close friends, there's a lot of, like, shared commiseration and, like, I see you and you're doing a great job and I'm grateful to have that. But I think, again, this performance aspect comes in where you see, like, the kind of overachiever parent, mother stuff, or Mm -hmm. the sort of social class striving piece of it gets mixed in. I wanted to quote a piece in Salon about women and the science of perfectionism that I thought was really illuminating. What a lot of us call perfectionism may actually be functional pursuit of excellence or adaptive perfectionist striving, 
of true self-oriented perfectionism, Natalie Dottillo, PhD, the Director of Psychology and the Department of Psychiatry at the Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, said, It's debilitating, it's terrible, it's awful, despite its benign-sounding name. The article goes on to say, It's perfectionism if your sense of self is so tied to your performance that a mistake threatens it. It's more like adaptive striving if you can fail and still feel capable of tackling the next challenge. Ooh. Functional pursuit of excellence feels like violence to me. Like, I feel like I just really got told something about myself. When is it functional and adaptive and when is it threatening? And that uh, really is a line that's hard to draw. Well, and I wanted to just go deep and see if we could talk about maybe when we've both felt like our sense of self is so tied to our performance that a mistake threatens it and Mm. maybe find some examples of quote-unquote adaptive striving where you can fail but still feel capable of tackling the next challenge. Well, I mean, the big one, which is a story I've certainly told plenty of times, but I'm always happy to go there again, is, you know, when my older daughter was born with a congenital heart condition and she stopped eating and we were thrown into intense medical trauma for three years while she had many surgeries and it was a very difficult time in our lives. I was very aware of wanting to get an A plus as a medical mom. Like the bar felt so high, right? Because it felt like my daughter's survival was tied to it. Yeah. But also there was a way of like getting the respect of the doctors. Like when we would do rounds in the morning outside her ICU room and they would be like, let's have mom. And they always just call you mom in the hospital. So you're stripped of any other identity. But it would be like, oh, mom has important things to say. And like I could tell them something about my daughter's condition that none of them knew. And they valued that. And, you know, like that I could explain some aspect of what we were dealing with. And like the way that would validate me because I was like, I'm doing such a good job as a medical mom. Yes. (laughs) And like I needed it, right? Because I was scared out of my mind. I had no fucking clue what I was doing. This was my first child. I had never so much as taken care of a newborn with a cold, let alone a major heart condition. So I was absolutely fucking terrified. And like, I really needed to feel like I was getting it right all the time. And that created a ton of fallout stress. I mean, that was then really wrapped up in when breastfeeding, quote, failed, feeling like I'd, you know, completely let her down. I do think what came out of that experience for me was some adaptive striving. It did make me appreciate how much lower the stakes are in other ways. I think I was a much Mm. more chill mother to my second child. (laughs) Right. But in my case, it was also like, you literally just have a cold. This is fine. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So that's like one kind of dark example. But I think it really, it was a crucible in which my motherhood was formed. What about you? Also an early motherhood example. I pursued motherhood without really knowing what was entailed of the labor of mothering, mm-hmm. which is awesome. Um, <laughs> and, you know, like, I wanted to be a mother with a capital M. Like, mm-hmm. I wanted to dust off my little Beatrix Potter hardcovers and put mm-hmm. them in a cute little bookshelf. I wanted to buy flowy floral pregnancy dresses. I even wanted to, like, obsess about what type of products I put on my body, what I put mm-hmm. in my body. Like, I really wanted It to be a day-filling endeavor. And so, like, I nailed pregnancy. That all went great. And I was like, okay, I've made the right decision, like, to become a mother and to become a better version of myself. Mm -hmm. And then I had my baby. And 
nothing like went wrong. I was checking all the boxes in terms of, you know, the boxes were taught we should check. Right, right. But a couple days in, was just feeling a deep absence of like all-consuming joy and transformation, mm-hmm. which is what I had signed up for. <laughs> like that is yes. what I had wanted. You were like, I was doing this for the euphoric wave of love. Where yes. is the euphoric wave of love? Yes. Right. And the euphoric wave of love. And also I was doing it so I knew that I had made the right choice to become the right type of person. Mm-hmm. And so when I was like bored out of my mind, just going through the monotony of newborn care, which, you know, it is monotonous. It's so boring. It's so boring. And I was finding myself just miserable and, you know, completely unfulfilled. I was just like, shit, like there is a deficit within me. Mm -hmm. This should be completely fulfilling me and, you know, making me a self-actualized person in the way Mm -hmm. that I was told it should. And it's not. Therefore, I'm the problem. It's not Mm -hmm. the conditions surrounding motherhood or the lack of support or the, you know, lack of transparency around what's entailed. It's me. And that was definitely a situation where my sense of self was intrinsically connected to my pursuit of perfection. Yeah. And it took a long time for me to figure out who the hell I was, you know, as a mother, outside of motherhood. Mm Mm-hmm. But that was definitely like a textbook. My sense of self was tied to my ability to succeed or fail Mm -hmm, in my pursuit mm -hmm. of perfection. Yeah, and it was impossible to step out of it and say like, wait, I was sold a totally unrealistic bill of goods here. I'm in fact sold the idea that I will innately connect to this and have this experience Because if we convince women that that's what motherhood should be, then we don't have to do shit for them, right? A hundred (laughs) percent. Right. They've done it all within themselves. Right. You are this self-contained vessel of maternal love, and you can just do it all. Oh, man. That's so fucked up. Yeah. I mean, it sounds somewhat similar to what I went through. You didn't have the medical drama. I think for me, there was, like, almost no time to be forming that, like— euphoric love situation like I definitely had no blissful newborn days zero right right. zero blissful newborn days my mothering was public almost immediately because we were in the hospital with a one-month-old you know and like being scrutinized by doctors all the time her first day was like three weeks and then we were home for several months but during that time we were running a feeding tube and we had to weigh her every single morning and check her oxygen like multiple times a day and we had to like file reports with the doctor every week with like all those numbers and like if you're someone who has measured your worth by data points if you are someone for whom the SAT scores loomed large (laughs) (laughs) it is not a great feeling to be like how are we doing are we tracking right is she going up enough is she gaining enough oh my god that's so so awful and again like I internalized all of it as like yes I'm not doing something right if this isn't working feeding isn't working this is my failure as opposed to being able to step outside and say like this is impossible. Yes. <laughs> this is this is just drama upon drama. This is just survival. And like, just the fact that I'm like still in the house is like a real thumbs up. <laughs> yes. And I want to be clear. I feel that way about anyone with a newborn. A hundred percent. Just the fact that you've stayed is like, you're doing great. Yeah. You don't need the dramatic story. The conditioning to go within and blame is so powerful. 
I'm thinking about the adaptive striving, like the other mm-hmm. end of the spectrum. I think the sense of self stuff is so prevalent in so many ways. I mean, mm-hmm. even the way we think of work, like our identities being tied to yep. what we do, if yep. we do it well, which is also tied to performance. It's just yep. like, it's sure really, <laughs> really hard to just intrinsically feel fulfilled and completely remove that from somebody saying I'm doing a good job. Somebody mm-hmm. outside of me is saying that what I'm doing is worthwhile. I mean, I think about that a lot. I'm sure you do too as a writer. Like, I pretty much never at this point in my career write something that doesn't get read, which is obviously the dream as a writer. Like, you want your work to be read. But I don't write just for myself. Like, Mm -hmm. I don't just, I don't do morning pages. I don't just, like, have some little piece of fiction I'm noodling around with, like, the way I might have when I was a lot younger and less established in my career. I feel very creatively fulfilled by my work, but it is also always like immediately going into the newsletter. It's a piece I'm writing for someone else. You know, it's immediately put out there to be consumed. And so, yeah, like my whole sense of myself career-wise is tied to performance for sure. So another piece we wanted to talk about, this ran in The Atlantic. The headline was How Confidence Became a Cult. This was really interesting. And so I'm going to read a little snippet of this. Whatever the problems faced by women or girls, the implied diagnosis offered is typically the same. She just needs to believe in herself. We use women to include all who identify as such, including trans and gender nonconforming individuals. Inequality in the workplace, female employees need to lean in. Eating disorders and poor body image, girl empowerment programs are the solution. Ooh, yeah, that cuts. Parenting problems, let's make mom feel more self-assured so they can raise confident kids. Sex life in a rut, Well, loving yourself is the new sexy. Each of these messages reframes features of our unequal society as individual problems. According to confidence culture, we need to change women, not the world. Damn. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Yeah, all that. Um, Someone publishing a book about how to help kids love their bodies. (laughs) Although I'm pretty clear that we need systemic solutions and it's not an individual problem to solve, just so we're real clear on the goal of that book. But for sure, we also talk a lot about how to have conversations with your kids and how to foster these things. I mean, this is such a tricky one because like, I don't know, I'm having like a visceral reaction to the idea that we don't need self-confidence. Like how would that even work? Of course. But it is very much the, like, let's avoid looking at systemic issues and just put the onus on you to solve it. And it reminds me of, I interviewed Rena Raphael about her book, The Gospel of Wellness. Yes. And she had interviewed nurses who were working during the pandemic. You know, mental and physical health was obviously on the rocks. Mm -hmm. And they had been told via workplace wellness programs to just do yoga more. (laughs) In what downtime? Right. And it's like, (laughs) yes, we are, of course, as individuals responsible for many aspects of our own, you know, quality of life. Of course. Yeah. But I do think in perfection culture and in wellness culture, there is too much emphasis on picking yourself up by your bootstraps. I'm thinking of like Rachel Hollis yeah, rhetoric. Yeah, wash your face. Absolutely. Yes. Hashtag no excuses. And that completely ignores and negates the very real structural, you know, 
imbalances in power that many people are facing. Mm -hmm. Like if you are working three jobs and you're a single parent and you have Mm -hmm. to get up at 4 a.m. to take public transportation to work, like it's not your fault that you're stressed out. Yeah, why aren't you doing more yoga? Right. And like, it's not your fault that, you know, you don't feel great about yourself. Like maybe you don't feel great about yourself for very real concrete reasons that have nothing to do with like your sense of inner worth, right? We see this really clearly in the way the body positivity movement has gotten watered down to nothing, pretty much, because, you know, that started very much as an activist movement driven by, like, queer, fat, Black women to drive systemic change, to look at how healthcare demonizes marginalized bodies. And now body positivity is a white, small, fat woman being very proud of herself for wearing a bikini in her hourglass body. And it is very much just focused on, well, just love yourself. Just love yourself. And I mean, I hear this from fat folks all the time. Like, loving myself doesn't make the doctor look me in the eye. Like, loving myself doesn't make the airplane seat fit. Like, loving myself doesn't mean I can go into a restaurant and know that I'll fit in the booth. Like, it doesn't solve any of those fucking problems. So, yeah, that seems pretty clear. And yet, I also fully acknowledge, like, I buy into a lot of this. I know. Same. This is one that's hard for me to detach from. So, yeah. Same. Oof. We were going to wrap up by talking a little bit about where we are detaching from perfectionism. Again, very much framed under like, y'all don't have to do these things. <laughs> There's no pressure to detach here. You're not failing if you haven't detached yet. We're not going to reverse it. But yeah, but Sarah, what are you either striving to detach from? One thing that just popped into mind. Okay, so you know, like the massive cultural imperative to eat meals together as a family. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I've bought into that, or at least, you know, even if we don't eat meals as a family, I've often sort of felt shitty about that. Right, right, right. But recently, so my oldest kid is very much like me. I remember as a kid, I would always be reading, like every time Mm -hmm. we were like sitting down as a family. Mm -hmm. I, I, I would just always have something I was reading. And he has kind of always done that. And for a while, I was like, this is a problem. We should be connecting about our days and Mm -hmm. da 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 But, like, I'll try to force conversation when he clearly, this is, like, a calm downtime for him. Mm -hmm. And frankly, I'd rather be doing a crossword puzzle, like, sitting right next to him eating my meal. Parallel play is so soothing. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So, like, recently, I've just found myself with little, like, examples like that, like, we can have nice yeah. together time. It looks different from yeah. what I've been taught it should look, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I remember having a moment in the pandemic when obviously we only had together time. And like the happiest day I'd had in several weeks was an afternoon where like I was reading a book on the couch and both my kids were plugged into their own iPads. Yep. And I was like, we are not having family together time. Like, we are not playing a board game. We are not sitting right. on the dinner table. But we were, like, all so chill together. Yeah. And, like, look at all those rules I was breaking. Like, you know, like, daytime <laughs> screen time for, like, hours. But, like, we were yeah. also, it was, it let us all relax together. And that was actually, like, super needed. Yeah. a very non-relaxing time. Yeah, that's a good one. And, yeah, the family dinner pressure is, like, I will just say, because that is something I looked into for the book, the research. Number one, we not only think we have to have dinner together, but we also think it has to be hyper nutritious mm-hmm. and home cooked. And mm-hmm. I just want to say the research is actually very clear that what you eat is not what contributes 
to the benefits of family dinner, it is time with your kids. And yeah. so if the only goal is time with your kids, that doesn't have to happen at 6 p.m. around a dinner. T- you know what I mean? Like, yeah, you can have other ways of connecting as a family. The meal is like a useful one because like you all need to eat anyway. Right. <laughs> like you're all there. Yeah. <laughs> but like if you're not all there because your schedules don't make that work or one of your kids needs to eat early and go to bed, like then you can do it some other way. And I think a lot of it has to do with the romantic visions of like the Norman Rockwell kind no, of family dinner. Say. I think mine is definitely work-related. You know, over the last two years, I have really pivoted away from being a full-time freelance journalist, which meant I really lived and died by every editor who I worked for. And many of them are brilliant and wonderful and good friends, but it still meant there was like this illusion of self-employment and control over my schedule. But actually, if a revise came in at 5 p.m., I had to like blow up dinner in order to go do that. And I have so many really dear friends who have been doing that same kind of work for so long. And there is a performative element to it, right? Like there is a performance of making sure to tweet when you're on a late night deadline. So everybody knows that you are filing a big story. And like, can you believe it? I'm working on this till 11. And I definitely think I was pursuing excellence, but like by excellence, I just meant like working all the time and like defining my worth through like bylines and fancy places and like being needed in that way felt really good. You know, like the urgency, but it's like, I don't do breaking news. I don't report on the war in Ukraine. Like nothing I publish is ever urgent. Um, Yeah. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, yeah. So it's actually just inefficiencies at major media outlets that make it all a last minute crisis. And if these places were better run and actually (laughs) adequately staffed and people were supported in their jobs. Like, we wouldn't be doing it this way. Right. So switching to newsletter writing has really, like, helped me see how much that was, like, messing with me. And to the point that when I did do a recent freelance assignment, I was, like, a complete mess. (laughs) I was, like, I basically had a trauma response of, like, oh, God, I can't do it again. I can't go back. (laughs) That's a big shift. Like, you know, suddenly going from being, like, I am Virginia Solsmith calling from the New York Times to I'm Virginia Solsmith calling from Burnt Toast. Yes. There's a big ego shift. There's a big, like, leap of faith there. There's a lot of letting go of certain expectations of myself and my career. And I just want to underscore, like, obviously, there's a lot of privilege in everything I just said. But, yeah, that's been a really important one to detach from. Well, this was great. This is making me super excited. So we should say, like, this episode was just me and Sarah chatting it out, kind of get you all on the same page with what we're doing. We have five more episodes coming up with different guests. You're going to hear a lot of me and Sarah chatting and also conversations with other folks working on these questions in a whole variety of different ways. You can add Cult of Perfect to your podcast players and join our list for free. But to hear the rest of our episodes in full, you will need to be a paid subscriber. It's just $5 a month or $15 for the whole three-month series. You can click the link in your episode description to join us. And that will give you the new episodes every other week. And then in the off weeks, you get all of our live threads where we talk about all of the things. I'm also really excited, you know, as we interview guests and as you and I talk about it, Virginia, ourselves, to identify ways that we might still be struggling to detach from ideals and, you know, so-called perfectionism, because I'm happy to celebrate where we have succeeded. Mm -hmm. But I think it's also useful to look at where, you know, we're still struggling and why we're still struggling. 
Yeah, we are works in progress. And yes. if you are listening, feeling like you are also a work in progress, we see you. <laughs> We're with you. Tell us about it. We are here. We got 100%. It. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, we have a lot more of this coming up. And if there's some aspect to this conversation that you think you'd love us to go deeper in in a future episode, like leave a comment. We would love to know what's resonating and yeah, where else we will take this. Yeah. Virginia, will you tell us about next week's episode? Yeah. So next week is going to be a deep dive into the performance of pregnancy and fat bodies. And so I am talking to two awesome researchers, Maggie Quinlan and Erin Basinger, who have a great study out looking at the messages that fat women get around their bodies all the way from like just even thinking about getting pregnant, trying to conceive through pregnancy and delivery, and how all of those external expectations are really causing so much harm to their well-being, to, you know, their ability to sort of function in the world, and to their pregnancy and outcomes of those pregnancies. So it's really important research. It's definitely a heavy conversation at times, but I think it's so important because when we think of perfectionism, around bodies, so much of it is often tied to, well, you're doing this for your health. And I think Erin mm-hmm. and Maggie's research really shows how much health is not the goal when it comes to policing pregnant people's bodies. Yeah, I'm so excited about that. I did a little research into that for Momfluenced and was just really enraged about yeah. so many things. Yeah. So yeah. Well, <laughs> I'm stay excited. tuned next week. You're going to get all of that rage. So yeah, <laughs> coming up. Can't wait. All right. Thanks so much for listening to Cult of Perfect. To make sure you never miss an episode, make sure you are subscribed for free in your podcast player. And please leave us a rating or review. That will really help folks find the show. And to hear every episode in full and to join our live thread discussions, become a paid Cult of Perfect subscriber by clicking the link in your episode description or heading to cultofperfect.substack.com. You can get more of my work at sarahpeterson.substack.com. That's my newsletter, In Pursuit of Clean Countertops. Or follow me on Instagram and or Twitter (laughs) at Peterson. And you can find Burnt Toast, the podcast and the newsletter at virginiasoulsmith.substack.com or follow me on Instagram at the underscore soulsmith. The Cult of Perfect podcast is produced and hosted by us. Our transcripts are edited and formatted by Corinne Fay, who runs at Sell Trade Plus, an Instagram account where you can buy and sell plus-size clothing. Our amazing theme song is Good Mom by the brilliant Faraday. From her new album, The Motherload, which you absolutely need to go download right now. Follow Faraday on Instagram and all the places at I Love Faraday. The Cult of Perfect logo is by Deanna Lowe, and Tommy Heron is our audio engineer. Thank you for listening. We'll talk to you soon. I'm a good mom.